Thank you for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. Hello, welcome to The Rest is History, and it's the second episode. Dominic and I are out and about in central London looking at statues and asking keep or cancel. And in our first episode, we went to Trafalgar Square, looked at the statues there. Cancelled George Washington, didn't we? We did cancel George Washington. <laughs> and I think I cancelled... Did I cancel Napier? I think I did. Nah, I think or, canceled, No, I cancelled Havelock. I cancelled Havelock. Yeah, you tried to cancel um, So we've now walked down Whitehall. We're by Horse Guards Parade. Um... Along the way, our producer was fulminating with Dominic, um, <laughs> arguing that they should all be cancelled because nobody's heard of them. Very much the Ken Livingston <laughs> argument. Um, and we've now come to someone who I think completely, essentially proves his point. It's what? a statue of someone I've, I've never heard of. It's Field Marshal, His Royal Highness George, Duke of Cambridge, KG, CCB, etc. He's a guy, he's on a horse... He's got a, it's a great a, statue, Tom. It's a great statue. He's that horse looks like it's having a piss. <laughs> um, Dominic, who is he? I don't know who he is. Well, he's George Duke of Cambridge. You said it yourself. I mean, do you not know? Is that Duke of Cambridge as in the pub? Uh, there, there are a lot of pubs named after him, Duke of Cambridge pubs. Why? So, he so is, who is he? He's Queen Victoria's cousin, and he was commander. He was commander of the British Army for a large part of the Victorian era. Okay, and I he's apologize for widely not that. known as the worst commander. Is he? In British military <laughs> history. So I don't think, he, he, he never sort of led us in battle or anything, I don't think. So why was he bad? But what he did was he opposed every reform, every reform, every attempt to make the army more meritocratic, to stop selling oh, So people offices, buying commissions. Buying commissions, exactly, to make it modern, uh, to adopt new technology, to adopt. He opposed them all. He famously said, there is a time for everything, and the time for change is when you can no longer help it. And right. he argued that they could always help it. So now so the he, other thing about him that's really fun is that he broke. There was a thing called the Royal Marriages Act, right, where you had to get permission to get married. And he broke the Royal Marriages Act, and he married an actress, and that meant that all his children were illegitimate. So all his children were oh. bastards. Okay, well that's he, quite interesting. Yeah. So, well, so the title didn't pass down to his children. Okay, okay, so I'm just just going to, our producer isn't on a mic, but I'm just going to ask him whether he thinks uh, keep or cancel. Cancel. Cancel, so he's he's cancelling. Well, that wasn't enough for you, Tony. Cancel on the grounds of irrelevance. (laughs) Cancel on the grounds of irrelevance. I don't know. I I think it's a nice statue, and I I also like the fact. I quite like the idea of having a statue to someone who was completely useless, and he couldn't even marry properly. But I think that that's in, in in keeping, isn't it, with the first episode... Well, we had a lot of useless kings. Yes. Charles I, James II, yes. George well, Washington, who, of course, I, beat the British. Um, some generals nobody's heard of. I, th- I think, in a way, that perhaps if we reframe the debate and say it, it gives encouragement to people who aren't very good. Yeah, well, the producer is rightly pointing out that he, he thinks this is absolutely ridiculous because we're in the ceremonial core of Britain. We're surrounded by all the buildings. So the old war office is there. It's just been converted into apartments. You know, we're in these fantastic sort of... Yeah, there's neoclassical buildings. And I like the fact that we have a symbol of futility. Incompetence. Incompetence. Uselessness. Yeah, I think that's yes. very British. It, it, isn't it? It, it's very yes, Minister, The French isn't it? would have, like, Napoleon or Marshal Ney, wouldn't we, they? And we have someone who can't even marry an actress properly. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. I yeah. think no, I, I, it's I, very I, British. Yeah, I, I It I makes you proud, that. doesn't it? 
To, yeah, to a degree, I suppose. Although it's not framed like that, is it? So people no. are very keen now on putting up um, little signs explaining who people are and why they're there. Yeah. So perhaps we need to put up a sign saying this man is here because he was massively incompetent. <laughs> because he's really useless. <laughs> so, All right. Now, so, now, do you know who this is on the left? Coming up here. Um, a very good statue. Spencer, Spencer Compton, 8th Duke of Devonshire. Okay. No, I have no idea. So he's the Duke well, of Devonshire. He's a Victorian politician. Now, he's an interesting person. So Dar- born in 1833, known, died in 1908. He's better known as Lord Hartington. He's very famous in his day. So he's unusual and he led... Nice motorbike action there. Uh, he led three different political parties at different times. Did he? He led the Liberals. He led the Liberal Unionists to break away from the Liberals. And he led the Tories in the Lords. He was offered the premiership. I'm full of facts, Tom. He have you been offered, looking at Wikipedia? I have been looking at Wikipedia. He was offered the premiership three times and declined three times. So in other words, as a man who three times could have been prime minister but wasn't, because he liked to spend his time, pleasures of the turf, shooting. Well, again. And I, wait for it. Wait. He had a mistress called Skittles, <laughs> who was, was and the, somewhere in London there's a plaque to her, and it says, the last Victorian courtesan. Oh. So she was a celebrity prostitute. And when she used to go riding in Hyde Park, she wore a specially fitted, skin-tight riding outfit, and crowds would gather to watch her riding. How about okay. that? Okay, well, I'm going to keep him. So he's definitely <laughs> He's keep, a massive he? lad. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> he's, he's a massive lad. And he looks good, doesn't he? You, you, yeah, he, I mean, he's got kind of... He's very Victorian. Yeah, nice beard. Great cloak, medals. Yeah. Why yeah. wouldn't you... So he yeah, goes, so this like? is for the producer, who says people are irrelevant. He is irrelevant, of course, but he's interesting, isn't he? Do you not think he's interesting? Yeah, so he's nodding. He's nodding. We've, I've won. Okay, so, I, so, I am the so statue we, champion. Do, so, so we haven't cancelled anyone yet? <laughs> no, no, we haven't cancelled either but, of those but we're two. Keeping oh, them. you wanted to cancel the Duke of Cambridge, though, did you, deep down? Or you I, like d- to I, do want, I do, I do, really. I, I mean, I think arguing for keeping him up just because he's a model of incompetence to encourage people, <laughs> it's not really a clinching argument. Whereas... Whereas a guy, a guy who had an affair with someone called Skittles, I like that. <laughs> yeah. And I, I'm, I'm happy to see that as a, a reasonable justification for keeping him. Um, you see, that's what I think is so great about this walk, is that all these buildings, which kind of connote power and magnificence and might, but as you keep, you know, the, the actual characters, are these sort of ludicrous people from... But it's kind of, I mean, who would be the It's kind of like having I don't know. statues to Nick Clegg or <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, Danny Alexander. Yes. Well, no, I mean, Richard Bergen. Kenneth Baker or <laughs> yeah. I mean, completely forgotten figures who nobody particularly yeah. liked. OK, so here's another one. I mean, it looks exactly the same. An Edwardian looking. Oh, it's um thingy. Now, Hake. now, it's Hake. now, this is a very good one. Is it Hake? Because yes, here we have Earl a very, Hake. very it's controversial Earl So I've person. heard of Earl Hake because I've read Gary Sheffield's book. Um, Earl Hake. Gary Sheffield will be coming on very soon yeah. to talk about the Western Front. So, so this is, you know, the British commander at the height of the First World War, the mastermind behind the triumph of the Somme. He's just been blocked off by a bus. Um, now incredibly controversial among historians, massive arguments for and against, seen as by some historians afterwards as the man who, you know, the, the, the donkey who sent all these lions to their deaths um, subsequently being a bit rehabilitated I think it's fair to say uh, he's from a whiskey dynasty he was very in with the court um, he was a dashing cavalry officer in his youth he, he was very religious he believed 
when he became commander of the British forces that he was being advised by the ghost of Napoleon, which is probably not an ideal thing for a modern general to think. But when well, he I died... Know. I mean, Napoleon was very successful. Well, yeah, I mean, it's right, better than being advised by... The ghost of... Some duffer. <laughs> yeah, um, the ghost of George Duke of Cambridge. Yes, exactly. I mean, imagine, imagine you get a supernatural advisor and it turns out to be him. The, worst. Would, the worst general. I mean, that would be a shocker. That would be just bad luck, wouldn't it? Yes. Yes. They sort of bring him out in some no, reality I think, TV show. I, mean, I think if you're generally being advised by Napoleon, you probably... Is it like the early rounds of Strictly Come Dancing when they pay you <laughs> yes. off and they... You've got like, John Sargent. Yeah. Okay. So, um, so yeah, he died in 1928. There was a colossal turnout for his state funeral. Yeah. He was very popular with the soldiers, like the Victorian generals we talked about last time. But this is so, not a pop- popular subscription, is it? This is a kind of... I don't think it is. No, I think it's state a state-funded... But I think had there been a popular subscription, there's no have, doubt he would have had it. Yeah. Because he was... The soldiers, despite his subsequent reputation, they loved him because he was... He devoted the years after the war to sort of campaigning for their welfare and stuff. Well, I see there's, there's a ring of poppies. In there front are. Of him, there are always... So, there's always yeah. If you look, there are actually always poppies under, by that statue. So, you know, this is an interesting one because a lot of people would say Haig's mistakes killed hundreds of thousands of young men. And, of course, other people would argue actually he won the war, that his tactics ultimately were vindicated. Um, I don't think there's any argument for cancelling this one unless you're going to cancel... Unless you're arguing that the First World War is kind of cancellable. And even you can argue making mistakes as a general isn't cancellable, surely, because all generals well, make mistakes. I think that statues that generate heated debate and material for podcasts are good things. Yeah. Um, so, Which is why you love the statue of Cecil Rhodes, right? <laughs> I'm not getting on to that. Um, so I reckon anyone interested in the historiography of the First World War, will, will, you'd want to keep this, wouldn't you? I, I think, yeah, I think it would be weird... I mean, some of our listeners may well say you're talking about military, a lot of military men and statues should be opened up beyond that. And the celebration of military prowess is, is not worth doing. I suppose my answer to that would be every society that's ever existed has, has celebrated um, military victory. It's a Roman thing again. Yeah. I mean, it's the legacy that you put up statues to generals who've won wars. And in that sense the existence of statues celebrating people who perform great feats or did they debate, discuss um, in, say, the First World War is a snapshot of that period. Yeah, um, agreed. This is a, a little bit of the 1920s Yeah, that we're at right now. Yeah, okay. as is also... Well, we've got a couple um, more generals, I think, Tom, have we? And some quite controversial ones before we get to the cenotaph. Yeah, I was um, talking... Oh, and we've got um, the memorial to the, the women of the... Second World War. Is that it? Yeah. Now, we're approaching your brother's territory because your brother, of course, has his podcast with Al Murray, We Have Ways of Making You Talk, all about the Second World War. Yes. So we're outside the Ministry of Defence and we have three Second World War generals. We've got Field Marshal the Viscount Slim, who campaigned in Burma. Yeah, the Forgotten Army, 14th Army. We've got Alan Brooke. And Monty. And we've got Monty. So let's do Slim first. Lots of people. I understand your brother is a huge admirer of Slim, Slim's generalship. Uh, Slim, I've got my notes. He was an ironmonger's son and a former primary school teacher. Was which he? Was a very unusual uh, career well, trajectory. So, he, so he's standing here. He's, he's in his kind of baggy, baggy 
uniform and he's holding some uh, binoculars. But he does have the look of a, a primary school teacher who's discovered... <laughs> a scoutmaster now. Johnny. Now, yes, this is an issue. Doing something naughty right? in the corner. It says at the bottom, Koima Imphal Arakan, which are you know, his great victories, all the rest of it. And it says, Commander of 14th Army. But at the bottom, it says, Governor-General and Commander-in-Chief in Australia. Now, there are allegations that as Governor-General in Australia, he interfered with child migrants, which the Slim family have bitterly resisted and which have raged in Australia. So here you have somebody who ought to be, you know, an, an unalloyed hero, but there is that kind of, well, I don't want to say the taint because that sounds like I'm siding with his critics and I don't know enough about the issue, but it, there's at least a question mark, I guess. Um, what do you think about that, Tom? Well, I think that proves the Gary Young point. That, um, you know... Don't have any statues the, ever. The, well, the, the, the danger with putting up statues, even of the most heroic high achievers, is that they'll turn out to have feet of clay. Yes. And the whole image of the feet of clay, of course, is a biblical one, thereby proving my point, yeah. yet again, that it's all about Christianity. <laughs> but so, it's amazing how he does it, isn't it? Yeah, it turns so, it well, well, it's a deft um, manoeuvre there. But I think, um, I, I think, you see, if you work on the assumption that but, all these but, statues no, are I, people who are sinners, who are people who are, ordinary, okay. who are human beings with... Yeah, but also I would say that it's a monument not just to Slim, but to the people who fought yeah. under him. That's why the name's so, so important, the Arakan and all that so stuff. So I think so that that's, that, that's important. Um, Viscount Allenbrook? So he was the um, chief of the Imperial General Staff, I think. Um, My brother is all over him. Yeah, listen, we're not going to talk about him. Imagine having that written on your memorial. Dominic, Dominic I dream of that. It's, it's, pointless us, it's pointless us talking about him. Let's tell the listeners to go and, and, and listen to my brother I'll talk tell you about him. I've got a fact about him. He's a very keen bird watcher. Yeah, like um, Edward, Sir Edward Gray, the Foreign Secretary. Yeah, very keen. Beginning of the First World War. Obviously, there's a podcast on that, Tom. Bird watching um, and, um, and World Wars. And then we've got Monty. Yeah. Now, Monty... Um, um, who won the Battle of El Alamein. So Monty he is, is Field you know, Marshal Viscount Montgomery of Arguably Alamein. Britain's... You know, if you're thinking about Britain's most famous modern general, I mean, arguably, I mean, it's clearly Monty. Monty is a very peculiar man, though, Tom. You know how he wooed his... So his... Um, when he was in his late 30s, he courted a girl, a 17-year-old girl, which is quite an age gap. Right. Do you know how he did it? Did he uh, talk to her about about tanks? He drew tanks in the sand and showed how he would use um, how he would use them in a military engagement. Well, I think that's a reasonable way to court a girl, isn't it? He's I mean, pro-apartheid. South, visited South Africa and said how tremendous apartheid was, and also had very strong views about um, homosexuality. Now, this, did he? He was, said, was he, he in favour or not? He said of the decriminalisation of almost oh, fell over a barrier. Um, he said of the decriminalisation of homosexuality, this sort of thing may be tolerated by the French. But thank God we're British. As the producer is pointing out, there is some question mark about Monty. Um, so, keep or cancel? I think you keep, don't you? I mean, you keep because he's, well, he's El Alamein. He's yeah, he's El Alamein. Uh, yeah. Um, but again, it's that he's... he's well, he, again, he's up, what, he's up there because he represents all the men who fought under him and some of whom died under see, him. See, this so, is the thing. I think about statues. There's always this presumption that by endorsing the statue you endorse everything the subject believed or stood for or said which obviously in Montgomery's case you know, pro-apartheid, pro anti-gay nobody, by, by honouring Monty, I don't think you're honouring those views but at also, all. I mean even in his lifetime he was seen as odd wasn't he? Oh, everywhere the general I mean, hated him, he was, yeah. Yeah, he, they, they all loathed him yeah. um, 
But yeah, the soldiers loved him. He was the soldier's friend. If you ever see footage or photos of him in his car, and the soldiers are clustering around, you know, want to shake his hand and okay. sort of get a glimpse uh, of yeah, him. Yeah, I, I take your point. So I'm, I'm very happy to keep all three. But I do, have, I do have something against them, against the three of them. Because originally, up until I think 2001, there was a statue here of Sir Walter Raleigh. Okay. Um, the Elizabethan potato being adventurer, yeah, um, who was, um, as 1066 and all that said, um, put in the tower by James I for being left over from the previous reign, <laughs> um, and he was um, he was executed on on this spot. Was he? Yeah. So the statue was put here to mark the spot, um, and then they they moved it basically because the statue of him, he, the statue of Raleigh, was too too short, so he looked kind of comically dwarfish. Right. Compared to the Second World War generals, yeah. So slightly resentful of that, but Raleigh's been moved to Greenwich. So Tom, Second World War generals. I'm conscious that in this podcast we've done only men so far. So have you got any women for me? A question well, I often ask you, <laughs> <laughs> Dominic. I'm so glad you asked me that question. I don't. You don't? No, I don't. But I do have a monument to the women of World War Two, right. which doesn't actually have any women on it. It just has. Their, oh yeah, that's a very, very. Yeah, it's yes, just their clothes. So it's point. their, it's their. I guess it's kind of land girls and. Yeah, land girls and, exactly, and, and ambulance drivers, wrens and, and things wrens, like that. Exactly. Um, and, and their uniforms and clothes um, hanging from a kind of great block. Um, so that's, and it's obviously a counterpart to the cenotaph, which is just a bit further down Whitehall, which I guess is the. I mean, that was raised. So that's designed by Lutchians, and it's. Uh, raised to commemorate the the first world war and yeah. it's still the you know the annual focus of the nation's remembrance let's walk towards the center um, but i just wanted oh. to say about the, it the lettering on the the monument to the women of world war Two. yeah world war Two. i mean that's an americanism i think it's a sequel isn't it world yeah, war Two, the sequel the, the al murray joke yeah um but i mean that's kind of disgraceful isn't it um i can kind of live with that i suppose the second world war wouldn't fit on the on the side of the memorial. <laughs> They'd have to change the font and that would be a terrible faff. <laughs> um, I think the Women of World War II is a great monument, actually. It's clever. It's, it's you know, it stands it out compared with the others. It really does. And it's, it's um, the, the context, the, the militaristic, the all-male context makes yeah. it all the more powerful. Yeah, I agree. And it complements the cenotaph. And I think to, it does. for now, a monument to, to, to complement the cenotaph is quite something. Now, I think, I don't know if you'd agree with me, but I think the cenotaph is an amazing bit of public art because so, it, i think because it's not figurative yeah agreed and because it's actually surprisingly modest in a way it's not overpowering um it's kind of moving in its simplicity you know as you say it's like a sort of altar or something built up on a on a plinth um it says the glorious dead at one yeah. end it was built in and it, so it doesn't it doesn't finalized in 1920 it, it doesn't go overboard with the patriotism. Um, it's, not, it's not an inherently nationalistic monument. It's also the first statue in, in either of these podcasts, Tom, where there are people actually looking at it. Yeah. So, so there's yeah, a there's family with very small children going to look at it, which is actually, I think, in its way, quite a sort of moving And laying a, they just laid a wreath, I think. There's a little girl going back there now. Yeah. yeah, and the sort of little girl sitting on the steps. You see, I think that's lovely. And I think that is what public art, historic art does. I mean, of course, and people which, aren't doing which... that at the statue of Charles Napier. I mean, it'd be pretty bizarre if they were. But I think that is very moving that, you know, 101 years after it was built, 
people are still going to visit it and to sort of, I mean, basically to pay, pay their also, respects. I think it, it, it draws attention to the way in which um, all the statues that we've looked at have been of single figures. So there isn't a sense of, of the commonality. There isn't a sense of um, tribute being paid to, you know, all the art, people who've died or whatever. Whereas the cenotaph does that simply by not showing any figures at all. Cenotaph, that means empty tomb, does it? Yeah. So I said it was an altar, but it's not an altar. It's a tomb on the top, a tomb on the plinth, elevated above the traffic. Um, and I do think, I agree with you. I think, as it says, it's the glorious dead, as the inscription reads. I mean, it represents everybody who fell in the First World War. And that's more powerful than a single figure could ever be, I think. Yeah. Okay, well, definitely keeping that. Okay, so that's definitely not a cancel. We should take a break. And then head to Parliament Square. Parliament Square, very good. See you in a minute. Welcome back to The Rest is History. We're talking about statues. We were on a lovely sunlit (laughs) walk down Whitehall heading for Parliament Square. And Tom Holland, in his not unfamiliar way, to me at least, has insisted that we take a dog leg. And we're now standing in the shade on a beautiful sunny London day. We're lurking by a boarded up shop, um, looking across a big bend covered with scaffolding and a statue of who, Tom? Uh, Of Queen Boudicca. And the reason I wanted to drag you here is that I think that this statue is the most interesting because the most paradoxical statue of any that we have looked at. So for our listeners who don't know who Boudicca was... So Boudicca, Boudicca, um, Boadicea, as she was known in the Middle Ages, as she was known quite popularly up, up until quite recently, was the queen of the Iceni, which was a British tribe that rose in revolt against the Romans in the early years of the Roman occupation. Yeah. Well, her daughter's raped or something. Is that so the her daughters were raped by the Romans. Uh, Boudicca was beaten. And such was her fury and shame that she, um, she, she led her tribe on a, a murderous rampage that incinerated Colchester, the capital of Roman Britain, as it was then, and then descended on London Dark day for and Essex. torched London. And to this day, archaeologists can trace the devastation that she brought in the kind of the black soil that, that it left. So there's an incredible paradox in the fact that you have a queen who incinerated London in one of the most iconic spots in the whole of the capital because she's on the end of Westminster Bridge looking up at Big Ben. So everybody who comes here will see her. She's in a chariot. She's got um, scythes on the chariot wheels, which she didn't have, but was a popular legend. She's got her daughters with her. Um, Boudicca, in the Celtic language that she spoke, meant victory, Victoria. But she didn't win. So... This is also a portrait of Victoria, Queen Victoria. So it's raised in honour of, Vic, of, oh, of, nice. of Queen Victoria. So there's all kinds of complications here. And we've talked about the, the, um, the ambivalences that um, this kind of Roman inheritance of statuary rises, um, provokes for people. So when we look at the statue of Boudicca... Are we doing so as Britons or as, as Romans? As are Romans, we identifying yeah. with the Romans who founded London? So in a sense, if you're a Londoner, you are an heir of, of, of the Romans. Or are you looking at her as, as a Briton, as a member of the oppressed people? Yeah. And bearing in mind that this was put up in the heyday of the British Empire, yeah. the ambivalences are huge because yeah, who you know, you is, is, is this a monument to British imperialism or is it a question mark 
being raised over the deprivations oh, of the imperial nice occupation. Song. Very nicely done. So yeah. I, I think that this channels all the tensions and paradoxes and complications that I suspect that when we go to Parliament Square, we're also going to we're be just, looking at. It's a demonstration, it's an embodiment of the fact that these, all these works of public art have multiple meanings. Absolutely. And to an extent, you project onto that what you want to see in it. I mean, I will say this, a lot of, an awful lot of people, since you've been talking... I mean, obviously, I've noticed loads of people looking at you and whispering to each other, is that, that's TV's Tom Holland, and the rest <laughs> is history. But I can't help noticing that nobody has looked at the statue. No, there's you a know, gentleman there just looked up at it. Yeah, I think he was looking at the sky. <laughs> no, I don't think so. I think he was, uh, he was at my... It's a splendid statue. It is, it's a very nice she's piece got a, of... a crown, she's holding a spear. Yes. Her horses are rising up. It's, it's everything. And it's actually, it's part of a, a whole tradition of European statuary, which asks exactly this question. So in France... You have statues of Vercingetorix, the Gallic leader who fought against the Romans. In Germany, you've got um, statues of Arminius, who def- again defeated Rome. But, but of course, these statues are themselves absolutely in the Roman tradition. So yeah. it's, it's an interrogation of the inheritance of Roman statuary, which I think is, is, is fascinating. What we haven't talked about at all, Tom, is the importance of statues to kind of nation building and a sense of national identity and a national story. So the, the classic example of this, I always think, I did a a rival podcast series, a limited series a couple of years ago, in which in the fight, it was about invented history, it's called Hijacked Histories. And the final episode, we went to the Republic of North Macedonia, as it now is, where they famously have got into enormous rows with their neighbours, the Greeks, because they put up statues of Alexander the Great and Philip of Macedon, and claimed that these people were theirs, and that they owned them. And um, people have always laughed at the Macedonians, because they put up billions of statues in Skopje, their capital. Um, and it looks like a sort of statue Disneyland now. But actually, although it's easy to laugh at them, I kind of think putting up statues is that in the Western world is what you do. It's to tell your national story. You write it in stone and, and bronze. And, and that's actually just part of the sort of the canon of nation building, if you like. And it's a particularly Greek thing because they're the, the people who start it, really. Yeah, um, that's, and, that's, you know, right. that's the that's the great inheritance. Uh, and I remember w- when we were doing um, the the podcast with Michael Wood on China, the question of whether the, um, the the terracotta army was influenced by that Greek model of figurative statue. Um, and I think it's certainly the case, say in in India, although there were absolutely kind of native traditions of of sculpting, um, you know, kings in in, in medieval India, the, the coming of the Muslims obviously irradiated that tradition yeah. so you you don't have sculptural representation say of the the, the, the moguls um so in a sense the modern tradition of figurative portraiture of sculpture in india ironically rather like the statue of Boudicca is an inheritance from the roman colonialists the statue portraying indian freedom fighters is an inheritance from the british imperialists so it's it's a kind of yeah. <laughs> massive moibus strip of cultural influence and cultural rejection um, uh, now, Tom, two, two busts that we didn't talk about that we walked past at the Red Lion Pub, Charles Dickens and Geoffrey Chaucer. And they're the, they're, they're the only two writers that we've passed so far. So that's the massive gap, isn't it? So we, we've looked at people basically who, 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 you know, with the odd exception, get their statues put up because they've killed people. Which is very Greek and Roman. Very right? Greek and Roman. Yes. Although the Greeks and Romans had statues of their great writers, of course. Yeah. Um, and that is something that we, we don't have. Um, I think Dickens... So Dickens is probably the writer who, more than anyone else... Well, Shakespeare. No, but it symbolises London. Okay, yes, yes, um, yes. Our image of London is, is 
completely fashioned by Dickens. And I think Dickens requested that there be no statues of him put up. So I would guess that's the reason that there, are, there aren't statues of him. But Chaucer also, huge influence on how we see London, because the Canterbury Tales begins with people meeting in a pub in, uh, in, in, in Southwark, in, in, on the south bank of the Thames. And this really powerfully struck me during the pandemic, because I was meant to be, that April last year, I was meant to be walking um, across Kent with my brother, just as the, the, the Canterbury Pilgrims did. Of course, couldn't do that because of the, uh, the, the, the pandemic and the lockdown. So I, I began reading um, Canterbury Tales. And it struck me completely afresh, the excitement of it, because Chaucer is writing at a time where the plague is, is, is endemic in London and it would be particularly endemic over the winter. So you would perhaps isolate, self-isolate over yeah. the winter. And then the whole thing about the, the joy of, of not socially distancing and meeting up with strangers in a pub and setting out across the, you know, the spring the, with the birds singing and the, the, the sweet showers across Kent. It kind of filled me with this wistful yearning. And I, 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 so one of the things that I did over the lockdown was to follow in Chaucer's footsteps through, across South London. Um, and for me, Chaucer and Dickens are far more vivid representations not just of London, but of, of, of England than any of the figures that we've looked at. I think that's at. probably fair. I think that's very fair. I think if you were redesigning White, if you were told to redesign Whitehall and to line it with statues to symbolise England or Britain, and you weren't allowed military leaders, or indeed if you just started I'd have the scratch, old military, I'd have keep Nelson. I mean, I think Nelson yeah. is a kind of uh, keep a, a charismatic figure. Uh, I wouldn't have James Napier. It mean nothing to me. Yeah, Nothing but you definitely me. have Dickens and, and Newton. and I mean, it's odd that we are no scientists, I suppose. Isn't it? I'd have Jenner, I could keep saying. Yeah, he's mad about Jenner. Anyway, yeah. um, Tom, we always intended to get to Parliament Square, and we've been promising that for, about the, for, well, for the last two podcasts. And we've gone on far too long because A, we're slow walkers, and B, we just, you talk too much. That is no, the Dominic, You've been going on about all these weird Elizabethan, I mean, Edwardian generals and <laughs> their mistresses. I prob- well, we probably have been. I think we've both been talking too much. I think we can. Yeah, we've been wibbling. So, on. we should do Parliament Square in a th- in the third part oh, of trilogy. this mighty trilogy. And in Parliament Square, of course, you get to the big guns. You get to Lloyd George, Churchill, Mandela, Gandhi, Millicent Fawcett, and the Earl of Derby. Oh, I know everybody <laughs> is. Um, and Cromwell. <laughs> yes, Cromwell to come. And Richard the First. Oh, very good. So we Huge will do names. that in the Return of the Jedi of this podcasting triptych on Parliament Square and we will see you next time. Yeah, see you. Thanks for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening and access to our chat community, please sign up at restishistorypod.com That's restishistorypod.com Hi, Rest is History fans. If you want more Tom Holland in your life, and frankly, why wouldn't you? I have some good news for you. I'm Emily Dean, and I'm thrilled to say that this week, Tom is a guest on my podcast, Walking the Dog, where you get to hear well-known faces at their most relaxed, because I talk to them over a leisurely outdoor stroll with my dog, Raymond. And you can join us this week for a very special two-part in-depth chat with Tom Holland. And yes, I'm afraid I did ask him this question. Tom, how often do you think about the Roman Empire? I think about it a huge amount. In fact, there are days where I 
barely stop thinking about it. My brain is occupied by the Romans. It's like gall. If you want to hear more of my chat with Tom, give Walking the Dog a listen this week. And while you're there, you can take your pick from episodes starring the likes of Ricky Gervais, Jack Whitehall and Jimmy Carr. What's that, Raymond? Yes, The Rest is History did do an episode all about the greatest dogs in history. No, you weren't in it. Most spoilt dog in history, maybe.